Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good friends, good to see you again. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, it's about nine o'clock on this Friday morning, January 20. Time to look back at the news of the week with today's Reporters Roundtable. Uh, well, Congress may have been out of town this week, but there was still a lot going on every day. More salacious details popped up about the talented Mr. Santos. Kevin McCarthy fulfilled his promise to House hardliners by rewarding leading election deniers with choice committee assignments. Donald Trump attacked evangelicals for not immediately supporting him for 2024. Uh, And oh, by the way, the government ran out of money. (laughs) It all adds up to great fodder for today's Coast to Coast Roundtable. From the West Coast, Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Melanie. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And from the Southwest, (laughs) Eliza Collins, politics reporter, now covering Arizona and the West for the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Eliza. Hi there. All right, your new beat. How about it? And here from the East Coast, stuck in D.C., (laughs) Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Hi, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. All right. So, Jeff, we ran out of money. Should we be worried about it? Well, normally I would say no. <laughs> yeah. But we are not in we are not in normal times, are we? Uh, um, hardly, hardly. No. Uh, Janet Yellen says the uh, the the X date will be upon us sooner than we thought, even with her extraordinary measures, quote unquote. Um, I think one of the interesting parts about this is that Congress had really wanted to kick this can down the road as far as possible before McCarthy would have to deal with it. Um, this is one of the reasons they wanted to – that they were so hell-bent on passing the omnibus back in the fall. Uh, McConnell, even for, for his part, trusted Nancy Pelosi more to, to get this through on the House side <laughs> last year than – trusting McCarthy to get it through this year. Um, so the idea all along was that they were hoping that they would be able to package this with the normal budget process coming up in September. Uh, now, given what Yellen has said, that's probably not going to be possible because the debt limit mm-hmm. is, is we're going to run out of money literally uh, before that somewhere sometime around June, even with the extraordinary measures. Um, so, it's what, what makes this hard is that we've got a lot of members on the right who, unlike 10 years ago when we did this, don't seem to be beholden to business interests mm-hmm. in the way that Republicans were 10 years ago. They don't need the money from the business interests either. They've got all the smaller, small dollar donations in the world, the Boberts and Gateses and, and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. They're getting $5 here and $5 there as much as they want to the tune of, of millions of dollars every quarter. Uh, so they don't need the Chamber of Commerce, and they're not influenced by what the Chamber of Commerce wants from them. Um, 
so we've got a couple of outs, discharge petitions. Um, I, I think McConnell and Manchin have both uh, uh, indicated that they're serious about solving this before it becomes a full-blown economic crisis. Um, so, so we'll see if the if the Senate can lead on this and get enough members of the House to follow. But we do know that, uh, at least for now, uh, the Republicans in the House, even with their slim majority uh, or margin, and the Speaker himself are really dug in, uh, including cuts across the board, including the Pentagon. Here is uh, the new Speaker. Does defense getting more than $800 billion, are there areas that I think they could be more efficient in? Yeah. Eliminate all the money spent on wokeism. Eliminate all the money that they're trying to find different fuels, and they're worried about the environment to go through. Uh, so, Eliza, whatever wokeism means, right? We've seen this movie before, haven't we? Well, it's rare for Republicans to talk about cuts to defense at all. We should say that. That's but yes, true. That's true. The, the yeah. culture wars, the wokeism, obviously the attacks on sort of the climate focus, that is not new. Republicans have been talking about that for a while. And I think we need to mention that the idea of cuts to the Pentagon, the um, spending cuts tied with debt ceiling, those were all concessions we believe McCarthy made in order to become speaker. I say we believe because we actually haven't seen the document of what he agreed to. But there were a whole host of things the conservative members who were holding out on voting for him had demanded. Eventually, he got there after days of votes. Um, and those did include spending cuts. Now, these were sort of the the far-right fiscal conservatives of the party who made a lot of demands. And it's going to be really interesting. I'm actually in Tucson, Arizona, and I was talking to Juan Siscomani yesterday, who is a Republican, flipped a Democrat-held seat. Um, it's a very competitive seat. He's the only freshman member who just got put on the Appropriations Committee, which is mm -hmm. the committee that spends money, generally works in a bipartisan way. And I was asking him about the debt ceiling, and he was squishy on it. But he was saying, well, we do have to do spending cuts. So McCarthy's going to have to figure out how to handle a conference that is much further to the right on all sorts of things, including even the Pentagon, which is something normally Democrats are pushing for lower numbers on, of course, not related to wokeism and climate, mm -hmm. but just top line. Well, Melanie, when I say we've seen this movie before, I mean, we have, I'm going all the way back to when Newt Gingrich shutting down the government. And it, it, it seems that it's Republicans who always push for that, end up shutting down the government and then getting blamed for it and suffering because of it. So politically, why is this such a good idea? I'm not entirely sure. Um, and to be honest, it feels like this is both, this is an odd hybrid of sort of the politics of yore and then the politics in the post-Trump era, right? I mean, Republicans, especially the far right flank, uh, back when we had this whole standoff 10 years ago uh, in the Tea Party era, I mean, of course, they've been looking for spending cuts. That has sort of been a consistent rallying cry all the way through. But it did feel like in the Trump era, the Republican Party sort of lost its sort of hardline fiscal conservatism roots to think more <laughs> about these kind of populist, um, you know, rallying cries and really just a general sort of governing own the libs sort of driving mentality. And it feels like that is like the new element of this, right? I mean, even when we hear, you know, Speaker McCarthy talk about spe about spending cuts to the 
the Pentagon. These are things that are, you know, sort of Fox News um, culture war issues, right? Like the, you know, quote unquote, wokeism or, or climate change. And so it feels like we have seen in the Trump years that Republican-based voters are not necessarily like screaming for cuts, um, but they are screaming for taking it to the Biden administration. And so, of course, I think taking the economy to the brink um, for the base has some appeal, ma mainly because there is a uh, Democrat in the White House. But I think that then you have these, you know, potential proposals at least where you see. Um, cuts to, you know, Social Security or Medicare yeah, or, yeah. you know, Ukraine aid or all of these things. And I just wonder for a the voters that just sort of bailed Democrats out in the midterms, made it not as, as gnarly in midterms as people expected. Uh, I don't know how this is good politics with them. And so I think that, you know, we have seen this movie before where Republicans take it to the brink and then it sort of blows up in their faces politically. And it feels like we might be seeing that again. Right. Just a, a quick point, a uh, final point on that is uh, that the, in fact, as you pointed out, uh, fiscal conservatism seems to come and go depending on who's in the White House. But <laughs> the debt ceiling was raised at least twice. Uh, I see some reporters say three times uh, under Donald Trump. Uh, and I don't remember hearing a peep from the Republicans in the House at that time, at any rate. Uh, moving on, let's get to the really the biggest story of the week. All of us reporters have been saying, thank you, Jesus, since George Santos arrived on the scene. We just can't get enough of it. As if it weren't bad enough, Jeff, this week uh, we find out that um, he's accused of killing a service dog by stealing $3,000 he raised for some life-saving surgery and of appearing as a drag queen uh, <laughs> uh, in a previous life, I guess. Is there any end to this story, Jeff? Well, then it do, got even. Do we want it? Do we want it to end? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. Uh, and, and truthfully, I'm not sure that he wants it to end either. Um, I think my my philosophy on this has been very very simple, which is that he needs to continue getting a paycheck, <laughs> yeah. and he's going to stay in Congress for as long as he can because there's a decent paycheck involved in it. Um. The dog story, of course, got even better with his tweet yesterday, which he later scrubbed. Um, he tried to say that he had been trying to rescue dogs, uh, but he, at an inadvertent typo, he said he was trying to reduce dogs, <laughs> which um, makes it, I guess, akin to, uh, to, to to Bob Barker's old pitch on the on the Price is Right. Uh, have, have your pet spayed or neutered to reduce the pet population. Um, so that was, uh, that, that was my favorite part of the story. Um, but on a more serious note, there were these reports coming out of the Washington post that Santos now surprise, surprise has a connection to a Russian oligarch. Mm -hmm. uh, he's yeah. got, he, uh, a, a, the cousin of a Russian oligarch who's been sanctioned by the, by the U S government. Uh, he and his wife each gave the maximum $5,800 to Santos's campaign committee and tens of thousands more to committees linked to him. Uh, so that, I think, is the most interesting tentacle of this story at the moment uh, on a serious policy front and the kind of thing that might actually get the House Ethics Committee, uh, might actually get their attention. Uh, and yet, uh, Eliza, the speaker says there's nothing he can do about this. Um, the voters elected him, and we have to wait two years for the voters to act. Uh, Congress has a few other options, don't they? 
Right. I mean, McCarthy himself cannot kick Santos out of Congress, but there are things he can do. He could have not seated him on committees. Um, Santos now has committee assignments. The House Ethics Committee can take up um, char- these charges and look into them, and they could take them up, and we might not know about it. They are private. They are not required to disclose things and often don't until they finish. But um, McCarthy has a really tight margin, as we've talked about before. He almost didn't become speaker. It is four votes right now. And Santos is from a very competitive seat. He flipped a seat. So McCarthy is, I'm sure, very nervous about having Santos out. That's one less vote. And then even worse, if there's a special election, and a Democrat wins that seat, he's got a three-vote margin. So he's in a very uncomfortable position here. And so he's basically just proceeding as if Santos is a normal member of the conference. Right. Uh, Santos, of course, continues to defend himself, um, saying, uh, competing the stories that you know, he worked hard and put his way through college and became the successful businessman. Here's a quick clip of uh, uh, Congressman Santos, we have to call him that, uh, from an old Zoom interview. I put myself through college and got an MBA from NYU and I have zero debt. It's hard work. You got to do it. Nothing comes for free. Nothing in life is free. I hate looking at youth today and seeing them sitting on their behinds and acting like, you know, oh, this is so hard. Yeah, why aren't young people like me? <laughs> Melanie, uh, in addition to the things that Eliza mentioned, uh, Congress can censure a member. They censured Paul Gosar just a year or so ago. They can expel members of Congress, which they have done 24 times. Um, do do we? It, it, isn't it true, Melanie, that if he were a cop or if he were a doctor, if he were an attorney, he were a judge, he'd be thrown out of his job already. Well, sure. I mean, I don't think that anybody could so blatantly lie on their resume and then stay in that job that they had, you know, recently gotten, and you know, once that is discovered. Um, but I think that that is. I mean, to McCarthy's point, I mean, the the voters did elect him, of course, with imperfect information. Um, but it does strike me that you know that to Eliza's point about sort of where McCarthy's position is right now. I mean, there are so many members right now who kind of have leverage over the speaker because he really needs every single vote. This kind of is one member that that, uh, McCarthy actually has leverage over, right? Because there are still all those options about, you know, taking a committee or a censure. So I feel like McCarthy, while the the headaches are going to be exponential with the more and more stories that are going to be coming out about this guy, um, there might be at least some sort of element of relief of, you know, McCarthy actually having the power dynamic that he wishes that he could have a speaker with this one particular member. Right. Um, so before we, a couple of other things before we move on for a break here. Um, yesterday, by the way, today is the second anniversary of the inauguration of President Joe Biden, who was in California yesterday surveying the damage uh, from the whole host of storms that hit particularly the central coast of California. He was in Santa Cruz, but he was also asked not just about the storm damage, but about maybe his the damage he suffered from the discovery of the confidential docs in his office in Washington and his home in Wilmington. And he, for the first time, I think, actually clearly spoke out about it. Here he is. 
We found a handful of documents were filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives and the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Thank you. Quoting Gertrude Stein, there's no there there. Jeff, uh, the president finally putting this behind him? No, <laughs> by, no by no means. Um, look, as, as a lot of people have said, of course, there's no equivalence between this case and the Trump documents case, uh, but it's nevertheless a, a political gift to, to Republicans. Uh, the, the, the talking points have become very clear among Republicans. I actually give them credit for message discipline, which is not something I often say about this batch of Republicans. Uh, they've been very, very focused on their messaging. Uh, Wesley Hunt had a, had a tweet that a lot of members have been, have been retweeting that if equal justice under the law still applies, then President Trump should have, or sorry, that President Biden should have a big problem on his hands. Uh, you know, where's the, where's the raid on President Biden's home, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Dan Crenshaw said that this was even worse than, than what Trump did, uh, because of some, potential um, donations that the Chinese government had given to the Penn Biden Center. Um, so the, legally, I don't think it's a huge problem for Biden. Politically, I think it's an enormous problem for Biden. Right. Uh, Eliza, I, I, was, I wanted to move on unless you have a, something to add on the Biden documents. But uh, I want to ask you about, we saw this week that, uh, again, in response to um, deals that he made in order to get to speakership. Uh, the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, came forth with his uh, a committee appointments. And on the House Oversight Committee, on that one committee, he gave seats to election deniers, Paul Gosar, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, what can we expect from that group? Well, we can expect, I think that committee will do just what uh, the chairman Comer has promised, which is investigate the Biden administration in various ways. I think what this did was give Democrats a little bit of cover because they can say, well, look who's on the committee and they can focus on the characters rather than the investigations themselves. But Last spring, Comer told me that this committee was going to be looking into Hunter Biden and all sorts of things that make the Biden administration very uncomfortable. They have subpoena power. That doesn't change no matter who is on the committee. But these are people, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar were kicked off committees under the Democrat held Congress um, for controversial things they had done and said. And McCarthy had always made clear he'd put them back on committees. But the Oversight Committee is a very high-profile one. Um, He owes them. Marjorie Taylor Greene was a ally. We've seen photos of them hugging. Um, He once sort of enemy-turned-ally who really worked hard to get in the speakership. And Paul Gosar opposed him and eventually came around. So... Mm McCarthy had to do something. Um, Now, I don't think that they'll necessarily have power over what the committee does, but I think that doesn't really matter because the committee's in agreement on investigating Biden and his administration. Um, Earlier 
last year, Comer had told us he wanted to stay away from 2020 election stuff. I don't know if that changes. We are now in 2023. So maybe Republicans are just ready to move on in general. But there's certainly going to be a push from certain members on that committee to explore things that are uncomfortable for other members, other Republicans. Yeah, it's certainly going to be wild. Uh, the hearings uh, will certainly be wild. And Melanie, uh, speaking, uh, looking at California now, the speaker not only put people on committees, he took people off committees. Two in particular, uh, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, he removed from the House Intelligence Committee. Not only that, he implied um, that there was a good reason for kicking Eric Swalwell off. Here is the speaker. If you got the briefing I got from the FBI, you wouldn't have Swalwell on any committee. Whoa. Isn't that tantamount to calling him a spy? Yeah, I mean, so much for kind of like bipartisanship friendship, at least within the delegation, right? I mean, this is going hard after like your fellow Californians. And yes, I mean, specifically when it comes to Congressman Swalwell, it is making these implications that he's compromised. Um, and again, in a way that I think this is this is a, a the Swalwell story um, is such a fixation, I think, on, even in far, far right wing media that this is who are you talking to when you're going after um, uh, somebody like a Congressman Swalwell, right? This is really a appealing to your your most hardcore base. And if this becomes something that just frees Swalwell up to go on cable news all the time and talk about how, you know, um, ridiculous the Republican uh, members of the House are, are being, then all you do is sort of let him rally up his base, you rally up your base, and it all kind of seems to just be a lot of noise. Um, this The Adam Schiff uh, kicking off committees is interesting because, of course, there's a lot of interest in what Congressman Schiff might be doing in the future in terms of seeking uh, political office. And once again, you have freed up an ambitious member of Congress who uh, has been having very high-profile committee assignments when the Democrats were in the majority, uh, now mm -hmm. has a lot more time on his hands. And I think we're all <laughs> watching in California to see what he does uh, with that time on his hands. Um, yeah, it could end up being, a, I hadn't thought of that, about that, could be a, end up being a blessing for, uh, for Adam Schiff. Okay, a quick Quick look at what's happening here in Washington. We better look at what's happening around the country from today's panel. Uh, after a quick break here on the Bill Press Spot, and then we'll be back with today's roundtable: Jeff Dufer from the National Journal, Eliza Collins from the Wall Street Journal, and Melanie Mason from the Los Angeles Times. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A dot org. Under the presidency leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, over half a million members strong, the members of the Laborers Union uh, in construction, in the construction area, rebuilding America using the funds from the big infrastructure bill passed by Congress last year, signed by the president, also active in the energy field and the healthcare field. We salute the good members, uh, men and women of the uh, Laborers Union, thank them for their good work rebuilding America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website to find out more about the Laborers Union at Liuna, L-I-U-N-A dot org. And we're back with today's panel. We uh, are lucky today to have uh, the country covered coast to coast. Melanie Mason joining us at the LA Times on the West Coast. 
Eliza Collins in the middle, well, sort of, southwest, <laughs> her new assignment there for the Wall Street Journal, based in Phoenix, Tucson, and Jeff Dufer here in Washington, D.C. So let me ask each of you, just take a look, what do you see in the year ahead politically? Just a quick little survey, and then we'll look at um, uh, maybe zoom in on some of those areas. Melanie Mason, start us off on the West Coast. What's going on? Well, I mean, as I sort of intimated earlier, I think the biggest thing that's going on, on the West Coast is that we're starting to see the beginnings of a major musical chairs when it comes to ambitious California Democrats. Uh, you know, California Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein has not said if she plans for running on reelection uh, next year, but that has not stopped people from already jumping in the race. Uh, and we could delve into those specifics, but I think more broadly to zoom out, that means that you know there are so many. Democrats, ambitious Democrats in California, and so few prestigious posts. And so anytime there's a possibility that one of these jobs opens up, you see this um, sort of everybody jumps in the pool, not just for that top job, but then all of the sort of domino effects, the congressional seats that open up. And then does that lead to state legislative seats? And so it feels like there's this major generational shift that is going to be going taking place out here in California over the next two years. And of course, that does have major implications for the rest of the country because um, you know, people still look to California as perhaps um, a sense of who might be some of the national political figures we should be watching in a couple of years. The West Coast uh, still sort of the blue wall from Washington all the way down to San Diego. Well, I mean, that's certainly what we saw um, in the in the midterms. But I think that, you know, what's always interested me most being out here is that it's a when, even when it's a blue wall, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a, a uniform shade of blue. Um, and I think that there is going to be a lot of very interesting conversations here in California, but also in places like Oregon and Washington about there is a dominance of the Democratic Party. But what does it look like to be a Democrat? And if you are in a place where one party feels a little bit more confident in its um, hold on power in the state, but you start to see some of these ideological nuances within that party. Um, I think that the, the conversation about what it means to be a Democrat in a place like California um, is fascinating in and of itself, but also I think then spills over into, say, future presidential races on a national mm -hmm. level. Uh, for sure. Yeah. When you saw Gavin Newsom standing in back of Joe Biden yesterday in Santa Cruz, you have to think about what Gavin Newsom was thinking, watching all that presidential glory, you know, uh, and um, ritual. So uh, uh, Eliza, there's a lot of jockeying going on in Arizona, too, as well as the rest of the West. Uh, how do you see things? Yeah, I was going to copy Melanie and say my state is quite interesting, too. Um, the Arizona, Arizona has become this political battleground over the last several cycles. This year, it Democrats won the top four statewide positions. Before cinema switched to an independent, it was the first time since 1950 that Democrats had held all those positions. Um, at the same time, Republicans picked up two House seats and still hold uh, very narrow majorities in the legislature. So it is a true battleground state. But I think the race that we're all going to spend a lot of time watching is the Senate race. Uh, cinema switched mm -hmm. to being an independent. She's up for reelection in 2024. No one knows what she's going to do or what she's thinking. The move to be an independent made sense in terms of a Democratic primary, which it looked like would be very difficult for her to win. She's really alienated uh, the Democratic base, and polls showed that she would really struggle to come out of a primary. But running as an independent is really hard. Um, and so there's a lot of questions about her future. 
Congressman Ruben Gallego, a Democrat, um, has been very clear that he's been interested in the seat. He's been very critical of cinema even before she made the switch. And it looks like the lane might have just cleared for him because Congressman Greg Stanton, the former Phoenix mayor, had been also considering running for Senate, and he just bowed out on Thursday. So we're watching those two. And the Republicans, it looks like it could be a crowded field with some names that we know are at least considering it or reportedly considering it. Carrie Lake, who ran unsuccessfully, but very a very close race for governor uh, this last cycle. Blake Masters, who ran unsuccessfully against Senator Kelly um, this last cycle, is also interested. And there are a host of other Republicans. So there's a lot of questions. If all if someone runs a Democrat or Republican independent, it could benefit the Republican. But um, I think it's about to get really messy here. Uh, and the former governor, Doug Ducey? Doug Ducey is being watched very closely. Um, he was someone who was thrown around a lot as a possibility for Senate. He ultimately did not get in the race. Ducey is a little bit more of a... Um, traditional Republican, very business-minded. He famously had a falling out with Trump, who he was close to for much of the Trump administration, but he certified the 2020 election where Biden won by 10,000 votes. And so that put him on Trump's bad list. And Trump went after him all the next two years, and it looked <laughs> similar to how cinema uh, would struggle with the Democratic base. Ducey would have had a hard primary, a Republican primary. It's totally possible he would have made it out, um, but it would have been bruising. And so he declined to run in 2022. That does not mean he won't run in 2024. He was term limited out of being governor. So he's got a lot of time on his hands. Uh, and here on the East Coast, Jeff, uh, how do you see it? And it does look like we are that Donald Trump still dominates the conversation on the East Coast, starting up with a maybe his very first campaign event of 2024 coming up in South Carolina. Yeah. Um, before we get to that, I do have a bit of trivia involving uh, my own <laughs> Bethesda member of Congress, Jamie Raskin. Yes, you, good. You, you wouldn't think I'd have a local angle here to compete with uh, with California and Arizona, but I do. Um, amidst all these, um, the committee reshuffling, uh, I was taken with uh, with how much more senior the, the Democratic ranking members are than a lot of the chairmen that McCarthy has uh, uh. Has, has appointed. So I I, I did a quick uh, a quick search and ran the numbers on how long everybody's been in Congress. Raskin, it turns out, is the only ranking member so far appointed that hasn't been in Congress longer than the chairman. Comer has been in, <laughs> it, Comer is in his fifth term. Raskin's in his fourth. Whoa. There's there's two committees where the the chairman and the ranking are even, and in the other sixteen committees, the Democratic ranking member all all of them have more seniority than the Republican chair. I just thought that was a uh, that, that's that was an interesting well, bit, of, bit of trivia. Yeah, that's interesting, and that should make for some. Um, uh, you know, lively maybe exchanges, right? In terms of experience and the way they run exactly. the committee and stuff. Yeah, we'll be watching that, right? Yeah. So, on the on the broader topic, uh, Trump going down to South Carolina. Uh, 
this was an interesting choice to begin with. Uh, this was a campaign that, of course, has been really just going through the motions at this point, barely even going through the motions. He announced uh, right after the election and, and then hardly has done anything since. I don't think uh, he's to, left Mar-a-Lago since. Yeah, to, to act like a candidate. Um, but South Carolina, there, there's, there's no coincidence here about why he chose that. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, both from South Carolina, are both considering getting in this race. Um, Haley, especially over the last couple days, she did an interview with Brett Baer uh, on Fox News, and Baer asked her specifically, well, you said you weren't going to run against Trump. And her answer was essentially, well, if I feel like I have something to offer, then, then why wouldn't I? And then this morning, she just retweeted the interview, uh, and at the top, she just wrote, stay tuned. Mm-hmm. So she's very obviously going to announce at some point. Um, and Trump is trying to cut her and maybe Tim Scott off at the knees by, by showing up in South Carolina. He's got Governor McMaster. He's got Lindsey Graham. Uh, he's got Russell Fry, who just flipped a seat there, all appearing at the rally with him. Uh, but I'm really curious to see which Trump shows up. Is this the, is this the dynamic Trump of, of 2016? Or is this uh, the, the low-energy Trump that we saw back in November at his, at his announcement where people were trying to leave early? So um, from what we've seen, uh, those of us in the Beltway, inside the Beltway, in the, in, or on the East Coast, certainly, the coverage this week of the new governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, Looking at that coverage, Jeff, uh, he looks like another already person to watch on the national scene. Do you agree? Yeah, no question. Um, now, it's it's also telling he's only the third black governor ever been elected. Uh, I think he's the fifth or sixth black governor in the in the country's mm-hmm. history, uh, but only the third that's ever been elected, and the first in Maryland's history. So obviously he's a bit of a, of a historical figure for that reason, um, but early returns on on him uh, are, are very good. Uh, voters really like him. He's engaging. He's charismatic. Uh, he is the kind of guy who can who can get the base excited. Uh, and you'd have to say that if Biden ends up not running, uh, he'd be he'd be hard-pressed not to see this as a, as a potential moment for himself. Uh, I have had people say, well, he couldn't run, Westmore couldn't run that soon because he would have just been elected governor. Uh, and I keep reminding them, I once worked for Jerry Brown, who had been in office about a year and a half as governor of California uh, when he ran for president of the United Barack States. Barack Obama had, had been in the Senate for two years. Uh, yeah, and, and he he recognized that that was that that was the moment. Strike while the iron's hot, and look what happened. And there it is. So uh, I hear what I hear from uh, all of the three of you, coast to coast, is it's going to be a very lively 2023 politically, uh, leading up to and even even more lively uh, 2024, and um, with perhaps a couple of indictments along the way. We'll see how that plays out as well. Uh, thank you so much to the panelists for bringing us up to date uh, on the news of the week. But before we let you go back to your daily jobs, um, one, what story caught your attention this week in particular? Anything we talked about on the above or just off the wall stopped you in your tracks uh, for at least a moment to think about it? Um, where are we? Eliza, can you start us off, please? 
Yes. So I've been watching um, what's been happening with the NATO allies and Germany uh, in terms of sending tanks to Ukraine. I think, I mean, we're now almost at a full year of the Ukraine war. And I know it can fall out of Mm. our viewpoint, but it's still very much a sustained attack on Ukraine. And so watching this rift as Germany has been hesitant to send a certain type of tank over has really sort of cracked NATO. And I'm just watching it's all unfolding right now and over this weekend. But I think it's something that we should be tracking because it has much larger implications of who our allies are and how people or how countries are acting. It's a huge story, right? And Germany is basically saying at this point, yeah, we'll send tanks, but uh, you do it first, right? (laughs) We'll send our tanks as soon as you send your tanks. And the U.S. is not willing to send those tanks. And other countries have German-made tanks, and they're saying, well, maybe we'll just send them. But um, it's all complicated. And, you know, any time that the NATO allies are divided, that is not a good thing. So we're watching that all take place. What caught your attention, Jeff? I thought this would perhaps come up in our conversation, so I had a backup just in case. But since it didn't come up, I am going to to refer to uh, Trump's truth social post from a couple days ago. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll do a dramatic reading. When I was in the Oval Office or elsewhere and papers were distributed to groups of people and me, they would often be in a striped paper folder with classified or confidential or another word on them. When the session was over, they would collect the papers, but not the folders. And I saved hundreds of them as a cool keepsake. So I know. That was so funny. Go so ahead. what you're telling me is while you were president, you took time out of your day to start a new hobby, collecting <laughs> empty classified folders, hundreds of them. And it's they, just, yeah, and they just, just happened to end up in his storeroom in Mar-a-Lago filled with confidential documents. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's, funny. A, it's astonishing. Uh, it really is, yes. Uh, maybe he was collecting stamps and coins and who knows what else, right? At the same time, Matchbox I, I, covers. Right. At the same time, he was collecting empty folders. <laughs> we don't know. Melanie, how about out there in Los Angeles? A story that uh, particularly stopped you in your tracks? Well, I don't know if I can compete with a dramatic through <laughs> social reading, um, but I'll, I'll throw in a, a great long form piece just to sort of round things out. This was in the New Yorker this week by Evan Osnos, and it is oh. a story that in some ways is just a gossipy um, cap, you know, wealth manager suing wealthy clients for not giving for not uh, giving the bonus and the salary that they promised. But it turns into a story that is so much more uh, about how wealthy families like the Getty family, which of course is quite well known out mm-hmm. here in California, um, ha- use these trusts for, um, to pass along inherited wealth. Um, in a way that then uh, avoids many, many um, opportunities for taxation. It is a mind-boggling um, look at the way that wealth kind of perpetuates itself through the generations. And for a political angle, the Gettys are uh, interesting, not just because they are um, one of the sort of most pre- pre- preeminent families out here in California, but they are also, of course, very close to our governor, Gavin Newsom. Uh, those of you who may remember the picture of Gavin Newsom sprawled <laughs> on uh, the floor of a, of a mansion with his former wife, Kimberly Guilfoyle. That is uh, a Getty home where they took those photos. This is uh, 
Newsom's father was a very, very close friend um, of the patriarch. And so therefore, Newsom sort of grew up around Getty Wealth. And so uh, this this is a long-form story that I think checks all the boxes. It's, it's gossipy, but it has a lot of big policy implications. And of course, I think that this is a family that Newsom watchers should continue to familiarize themselves with if he indeed uh, wants to sort of keep climbing on the national rungs. We'll be hearing about the Gettys quite a bit. Boy, that that uh, that photograph. Check it out. Uh, Google it if you haven't already seen it. Right, I'm it Gavin. It, every so often, Twitter rediscovers <laughs> that Newsom used to be married to Kimberly Guilfoyle, and the photo resurfaces. And it's just it's a great day on the internet when that thing all of a sudden makes the rounds again. <laughs> yes, we will never see the end of that photograph. Well, I have to tell you, I feel, I feel almost ashamed by my favorite story of the week, but it did intrigue me and it pleased me for some reason. And that was uh, the big news out of the State Department this week. Uh, you know, with everything going on, uh, as Eliza mentioned, still the war in Ukraine and, and all the other stuff that Secretary uh, State Blinken is dealing with. Um, this week, they made a very important move at the State Department. They dropped the new Roman type style for all State Department documents. And they insisted that Everybody in the State Department and everybody around the world and all of our embassies now use Calibri as the new typeface. Um, I found that interesting because a few years ago, <laughs> for some reason, I just discovered Calibri and started using it uh, on my uh, word processor. And uh, if I get anything now, download anything that's not in Calibri, the first thing I do is immediately change it to Calibri just because I like it and like the look of it. Uh, and to see the State Department adopt my typeface, I thought was a particular personal triumph here. So uh, I encourage all of you to check it out. If you're still using New Roman, you are old fashioned. Get, get with the times, get with Calibri from now on. What do you use at um, National Journal, Jeff? Uh, do you I, know? I usually use just the, the Arial Sans Serif. The, whatever, whatever the basic one on Google Docs is, although I will also mention that uh, an unnamed columnist of ours uh, files to me every time in Comic Sans. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, I, I urge you to take a look at Calibri. All right. I will. All I right. Will. Hey, thank you all. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Los Angeles early this morning, Melanie Mason. Thank you also almost as early in Tucson, Arizona, Eliza Collins, and here in Washington, D.C., Jeff Dufer. Good to have you with us again. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday with our next podcast talking with Catherine Rempel, a columnist for The Washington Post, all about the debt ceiling and fiscal conservatism and the national debt. That's next Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.